Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where it is you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, the host of AI in the Future of Work, the weekly podcast where we discuss the future of work with entrepreneurs, technologists, venture capitalists, and journalists. Bit of a history tour to kick off today's discussion. Let's just say, uh, I remember when DevOps first became a thing, there were these quirky DevOps days first started in Belgium, uh, back around, I think around 2009, a gentleman named Patrick Dubois, who probably many of you have heard of, kicked off the first one. And within a few years, many of us had become disciples of this new, you write it, you own it philosophy of uh, developing uh, software. There were people like Bridget Cromhout from Microsoft and Charity Majors, who's actually now a CTO at Honeycomb, who started popularizing these conversations really related to what it means to be a developer who also owns infrastructure. Guys like uh, Jason Dixon uh, kind of expanded the, the, you know, made DevOps part of the lexicon, uh, starting the event that many of us know and love called Monitorama, kind of a, a geek fest for all things related to monitoring. That was a, in 2013. And all of a sudden, DevOps was just an unstoppable force. And vendors like ServiceNow, where I was at the time, and, and uh, other large vendors started co-opting the term and kind of everyone had a product or products for developers who were monitoring their own code. Now, early entrants often used the kind of the moniker APM, uh, Application Performance Management, vendors like New Relic and AppDynamics, and then they were quickly followed by another set of vendors, the log analytics players like Splunk, Sumo Logic, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, anyone who was doing anything in and, around, in and around systems management became a player in the DevOps space. I'd say monitoring 2.0 was born from the need to make sense of masses, what I call digital exhaust generated by these new architecture patterns like microservices and serverless computing, dockerized apps, kind of API-driven everything. Well, it's a long way of saying today's guest was coaching vendors from the earliest days of DevOps and monitoring 2.0 as one of the leads on the infrastructure and operations team, or what they call INO at Gartner. I can say that I was the beneficiary of his advice many times. That eventually, uh, he defined a term for the new world of monitoring applied to high-velocity systems management, and thus AI ops became a thing. It was co-opted by many others in the space, including other analysts and whole industries were born. And now we more commonly call it artificial intelligence for IT operations. Um, but with that as a, as, as a lengthy intro that I thought was necessary, we're so lucky to be joined today by my friend and perhaps the only person on the planet more passionate than me about applying AI to IT. Colin Fletcher, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Thanks, Dan. And uh, hey, everybody. <laughs> yeah, where to begin? I've done a lot of things for a lot of reasons, but uh, anybody that's shared a, a more than a couple meals with me, um, and if we haven't, we need to do that sometime, uh, knows that uh, uh, my very first paid uh, work outside of mowing lawns was uh, professionally frying chicken. Uh, and as such, I feel entitled to uh, my opinions about what is good fried chicken. 
but I suspect that's not what everybody's interested in uh, for this, or, or at least in this context. Uh, from a technology kind of career standpoint, uh, I started in tech support at Apple. Uh, for those of you that can see something, I've got a certificate on the wall still from my new hire training. I was uh, uh, working the support desk for uh, what were then called PowerBooks. Um, so that should appropriately date me. Uh, there was something before MacBooks, they were called PowerBooks and they were equally awesome. Along the way, I kind of worked my way through a number of IT operations roles. I worked in desktop support. I led a desktop support team. I eventually became a server slash network admin of various stripes, uh, typically and most often working on uh, a Windows server admin kind of role to varying degrees, and then um, took a turn uh, over to through the uh, the vendor space and various product marketing and product management roles, and then found myself later as a as an analyst at Gartner, uh, covering the space as you described, and and now I'm uh, leading our uh, market research and customer insights. Uh, team over at uh, at GitLab, uh, where we uh, uh, look after our customer reference program, case studies, industry analyst relations, uh, peer review, uh, site uh, management, and when we have in our spare time uh, the time and inclination, we do some primary and secondary market research as well. So vendor to analyst, uh, and then back to being on the vendor side. What do you, what do you miss about being a vendor? Uh, sorry, an analyst. You know, I, I miss I miss things from all of those all of those different phases uh, from the analyst days. Uh, this may or may not surprise you, uh, but I, I miss I miss the people. I miss the totality of those kinds of interactions. I miss uh, clients and and peers alike. There was uh, the nature of those relationships and, and interactions was incredibly rewarding, guided by an independence, uh, the freedom to focus on my constituency's needs, which was end user buyers of, of technology, and the powerful trust you know earned that I worked very hard to earn, gratefully received you know by all involved, and that that I always found was critical to fostering the kind of really interesting, really challenging sometimes uh, discussions and, and ideas that, that I believe truly could lead to disproportionately amazing results one way or the other. Like I just, I think that that kind of transparency, that type of comfort to explore different ideas in that kind of setting was was unique. So that's that's what I miss of that that role. I remember hanging out with you at an INO event, and you had a little box. They had these little you know pop up offices, and uh, you were probably on maybe your twelfth briefing of the day, and you had a big smile on your face and beer in your hand, and you were in your element. You know, for as much as it's a grueling job, you were you're really yeah. good at it. I'll, I'll 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 let you be the judge of that, and, and anybody else. But uh, no, that. So we'll open, cool. the, uh, open the time capsule a little bit. I think you coined the term AI ops in yep. 2017. And uh, we'd love for the audience to hear what that meant to you when you coined the term and then maybe mm -hmm. 
how the definition of AIOps has changed a couple of years later. You know, memory is a tricky thing without it in front of me. And honestly, I haven't even looked at it uh, in a little while anyway. I actually think it was 2016 when it published the first iteration. I'll use that word. That's a fun word uh, of AIOps. Um, originally introduces algorithmic uh, IT operations and then later became AI uh, for IT ops. What I was trying to do in service to my end user constituency, typically in enterprise end users, right? Uh, IT leaders in INO, infrastructure and operations, was I'd, I'd run into way too many instances where I'll just say broadly, it seemed like the intent or lack thereof to invest and think about strategically the impact of AI or AI-like or component technologies on within that space of IT operations, everything within that world was being looked at as something either optional <laughs> as something as an option to to deal with or at best delayed um avoided in some way and i felt like us in the role of a gardener anyway that that simply was just the wrong way to kind of go about it to kind of bury one's head in the sand or what have you um and ignore it there was a very real in my mind anyway and and others opportunity at that time to recognize that opportunity to start to think about all of the ways that AI could help uh, in all major facets of IT operations, uh, recognize the, the breadth of that opportunity and start to map out a plan, a strategy for investing appropriately and investing, when I say investing appropriately, I mean not just in the technologies, but in the skills, in securing agreement in the organization for the funding for this kind of thing, to be thinking about it in line with the likely impact, the, the, the size of the disruptive impact that it would have on these functions. I, I really felt like that was, you know, our duty, you know, to, to do that. And this was a way of trying to get that, that described in ways, this opportunity described in ways that our audience could actually start to build their plans, start making decisions, start grouping different types of technology, start identifying certain use cases that were specific pain points where maybe these kinds of technologies or parts of these technologies might have a bigger impact than others, where they have skill gaps. Uh, all of that needed to start happening because prior to that, frankly, a lot of the discussion around quote unquote analytics within the IT operations space was almost solely focused on a, on a reactive, from a reactive mindset as opposed to acknowledging particularly what was then 
an increasingly emerging and somewhat practical set of technologies that would enable some predictive insight uh, in different ways, different ways to practically use uh, language recognition technology, like all of these different elements were not necessarily there yet and super easy to use, but they sure as heck were far, much further down the road than they were just 10 years prior. And it felt like a lot of that discussion was still stuck in that. We talk a lot on this show about the complicated relationship that humans have with machines in the mm -hmm. workplace today and in potentially in the future. Yep. What do you think are some best use cases with respect to DevOps and AI ops, where there's a role for machine generated decisions to augment the capabilities of humans? There's a couple of different directions for that. The best place to start for a lot of folks is looking at areas where uh, what I would what I would typically refer to as uh, augmentation uh, in my own in my own kind of terminology. So I introduced when I introduced AI ops, I talked about kind of the notion of assistance versus augmentation. One being uh, the way to answer, and I myself might even get them mixed up as to which one was which, but. The point remains, there were two big buckets. One was the application of these technologies to help answer the questions that, are, that have a known value, so they're worth answering on a regular basis, that have some understanding or context to what the point is, what the data requirements are, and what the likely outputs are, are um, to be simply using these technologies to automate the answering of those questions over and over and over again. Why are we spending, why is anyone spending human mental cycles and bandwidth on answering questions that can be automated? That's, I don't know, that's just, that's just a, a conundrum there. Felt like that was a big place. That's one of the reasons why monitoring data in particular availability and performance data fit a lot of those bills um, to be able to to apply those to at a base level looking at automating that process of analyzing that information um, the other category is uh, is to use a, a a phrase that I don't know that I'm reconciled with its origin, but helps us deal with the uh, the unknown unknowns, the questions that we didn't know to ask to begin with. And that's a much more difficult problem or set of problems or use cases to solve. This was around the time when we, we started to see increasing pattern recognition capabilities, being able to derive inferences and connections where we just can't, you know, humans were not seeing them. That I always saw as the more kind of exploratory, exciting kind of avenue there. Within the context of DevOps, frankly, I don't know that I've seen a lot of application of, of these kind of technologies to the development process to date. There's, there's different places where it's being put into, into account, but I certainly think on the ops side of DevOps, 
I, it's it's a little mystifying to me at times that we, I haven't necessarily seen the uptake of some of the automated analysis of monitoring information. It's been fascinating to see entire constituencies reinventing various wheels uh, to some extent uh, and coming to some of the same conclusions. So I see that as a big opportunity to apply some of that pattern discovery, machine learning capability to identify trends and monitoring data. Uh, pairing that with any uh, data generated through the testing process, performant data now that we have in many instances using cloud resources, an even simpler way of spinning up, you know, a test environment or a, a pre-production environment and running various tests on it uh, and generating a ton of data so that we have something to compare to production reality. That's infinitely more practical than it has been in the past. That's there. I hope to see uh, more use of end-user feedback and analysis of end-user feedback and interaction data incorporated uh, through the use of data generated through APM tools, other, other tools, through instrumenting or the applications themselves being fed back into, uh, into the planning phase of applications and some level of prioritization based on any business impact assigned in those activities. Sometimes that's delineated. We can decide what transactions are important and have a certain business relevance or impact to them using that logic to on a dynamic basis, prioritize what uh, user journeys and experiences are more important to improve or address is something that uh, I haven't seen yet in, in mass, but uh, I hope to see uh, eventually. You know, there's, there's a number of other applications. There's literal uh, uh, somewhat artificially intelligent or automated uh, testing suites. There's certainly bots that can code to varying degrees uh, that will be interesting to see how that works out. I think I think that's a it's more than enough to to chew on for now. So you talk about the value of DevOps. There are a lot of uh, listeners on this call that I would say are early in their adoption of DevOps, you know, kind of low on the maturity curve. And if so if you would say hypothetically there's two ends of the spectrum, one is developers and and operators uh, are completely siloed and then on the other end kind of you know the holy grail of you write it you own it in in your kind of coaching to customers maybe through GitLab give us examples of how you get from one end of the spectrum to the other if you're kind of you know just looking for yeah, how to begin your journey uh, you know the the journey on on either end is, is always fascinating to see how that kind of uh, plays out. I'll, I'll say I've seen plenty of different patterns of success, definitely different patterns of adoption and, and incorporation. I will say that it seems like it gets glossed over or missed sometimes or everybody's within the DevOps community, if I can use that term. Sometimes kind of takes it for granted because it's used so frequently. Uh, the small team or focused team is the best starting point. Like, I think that gets taken for granted, um, but yet I still see and hear of 
plenty of organizations out there that start the conversation as a top-down kind of mandate. Um, I'm not going to say it's the most, but it because it, it's not. That's still happening to a great degree, and I see a much lower success rate in those situations. The the most typical successful starting point, and it doesn't matter if you're a development team or if you're an ops team looking to do something like GitOps uh, to address kind of CI, CD for infrastructure, to oversimplify that, they often still start in the same place. They start with a focused team with a certain business result. Often it's it can be boiled down to, you know, move faster. That's that that's usually still the the recipe, and with a fair amount of liberty on the how, uh, and uh, they start in the same place, which should bring a smile to your face and probably several people out there. They start with an agreement on what the single source of truth is. Now, I'm 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 chuckling a little bit, giggling. I, I don't I'm not. Uh, trying to cause too many uh, folks too much grief, but uh, it was the CMDB. This is also a a universal truth. This is the same thing, right? There is a universal truth. It doesn't really matter what you're trying to accomplish. If you don't agree on what is quote unquote, the system of record or truth, then everything else is going to be a mess. It just is. So I, I find that, fascinating is just as uh, held just as strongly within the development community as it is within the ops community. They just typically look at different things as their starting point uh, in the case of dev DevOps and dev teams and increasingly GitOps teams, GitOps teams, and it's in the name, it's a source code management tool of some kind, a version control and collaboration foundation there. Uh, the next kind of logical step is some form of automated testing for quality, for security of whatever it is. Then those teams typically focus on automating the development journey to some extent, and then ultimately improvements in the running of of said systems um, that's there. So I don't know if that totally answered your question, but that's the pattern of, of success that I see. What I still don't see a real established pattern of is then then what? So this gets accomplished at the team level. We're using whatever combination of knowledge, their single source of truth, their set of, of profiles and systems. I don't know in my from what I've seen anyway, that I've seen a very clear path to consolidation or reconciliation across teams within organizations. You know, some some organizations somewhat famously have gone down a path of education, branding that opportunity, using that opportunity as a development opportunity uh, to solve for one of the biggest challenges that remains, which is talent for organizations, uh, managing talent uh, through a dojo concept or something where people are rotating and building their skills so that becomes a forum for collecting the best the the better practices and evaluating them and them being you know some room for experimentation to be compared i've seen that occur but i haven't seen that get 
critical mass yet as the way to propagate that. As mentioned earlier, I still hear of plenty of folks where there is a few very successful specific teams and an executive decides that's fantastic just and they just go do it again, right? But everybody does it now. And uh, I recently participated in a, in a round table a couple of weeks ago uh, with some folks from uh, the BBC and HSBC who had their varying degrees of experiences with that approach, uh, which is not unusual where it doesn't always click. Um, what I often find here too, like what I was trying to avoid with AI ops is that DevOps tries to get, it's so big and yet it is, it is still such a, such a situation where you still need to pick somewhere to start, but you still need to remember it's so big that sometimes that transition from this is this massive cultural change in effect, this is where we're going to start. The, this is still the longer path to full, if we can imagine it, value realization too often, if that first step gets challenging, bungled in some way, then unfortunately, the concept that it, uh, if the concept is new to those folks, to many of those folks with the bungled thing, then the association makes it difficult to kind of break out of that kind of negative connotation. So much of what you're sharing seem like seems like just platitudes. I mean, you know, the benefits mm. of better product quality and higher velocity yep. and yep. You know, build consistency. And yep. yet you and I know that most large organizations are still at the very far left end of the maturity curve. What's so hard about adopting DevOps? The core tenants don't get, well, there's two things. One is the core tenants of it don't seem to get the values of it, get fully signed up to. Like people really thinking through what the consequences of those values are. Uh, and two, I personally have not seen enough thoughtful alignment of actual incentives to the people involved to align with doing things in that way. So I, I don't know if you've seen this, but I know I've seen my share of job descriptions that have DevOps in the title and then read like infrastructure systems analyst two or whatever, right? Pick your pick your title. Uh, and similarly, the structures, the organizational structures themselves, don't don't match that incentive ideal kind of incentive structure. So you've got you're either in or you're not with something that's cultural, which is what I think draws the attraction to the top-down way of, of approaching it. People just want to say, thou shalt. But even in those instances, one of the questions they'll often ask is, so did you change your, what is your org, how did your org change? How did your org chart change? How did people's pay packages change? How did uh, their ongoing performance management change? How did that change? And too often the answer is that it didn't. Uh, I'm a strong believer that people work towards their combination of incentives 
at least for a good part of what they do. And if those things don't line up, people know it. They just, they know it. Uh, one of the core values that I was getting at uh, mentioning earlier, it is something that I really like about my my current kind of kind of gig is that we spend a ton of time talking about values because we believe it's absolutely essential to making everything else work. One of the things that sometimes is said, sometimes I find it unsaid about DevOps is the assumption that everything that can be automated will. Everything that can be automated will. I view automation as effectively documentation that is put into action in some way. Why is that important? Well, it's important because it's actually getting it put down in words, in terms that others can work with, which promotes transparency. It's clear what people are working on and what they're not. When people are disincented to hide things, make them inaccessible in some way, use other languages, contexts that make a single source of truth uh, unworkable, you get the same result. I, I just, I think that's, if anything, it's, a, it's an unwillingness to rethink, to make the organizational and skill changes, incentive changes that are required to make this successful. That, that's why it doesn't work for a lot of folks. They want to buy a tool to fix their organizational, cultural incentive problems. And guess what? It doesn't do that because it wasn't built to do that. That's, that's not why it was built. Expecting that result leads to frustration and, and failure more often than not. You introduced a great new definition for automation in IT ops, which is it's really operationalizing documentation. It in is. a lot of ways, it's, it's taking best practices and infusing those into the DNA of a development process. And it's where everybody can see it. It's where everybody can comment. It's where everybody can, it, that where it's doing something with some kind of measurable impact, right? Like we know what it's doing. It's either working or it's not. I tell you what, you come up with a nice acronym for that. And the next, the next time we talk, we'll be talking about how okay. that's the, uh, that's the newest movement in, uh, in sure. ITOPS, right? Why not? Uh, so I can't let you go without asking you. We, we, sure. We've talked about kind of where AIOps was when you coined the term, where, yeah. we're, where we're at now. Fast forward, let's say even three years, what are the processes that define AIOps in 2023? I'd, I'd like to think that the things that we see as an output of that are increased acceptance of automatically generated insights, acceptance, review, turned into, into action. Uh, what I'd like to see is many of those ideas that we talked about earlier about its impact or role in DevOps like come to fruition, which means this whole other generation and group of, of developers who are taking on operational roles decide maybe they'll just skip some of the manual stuff and, and take advantage of the technology that's there. Um, 
That would be a big benefit. Uh, what I would like to see is much more intelligence applied to the uh, progressive delivery kind of concept, the, the continuous delivery concept. So more intelligent uh, delivery of different releases of functionality to different audiences um, in, in such a way that that's dynamic and intelligent. So if we're gonna make the color change of a button and we want to see how people, you know, respond to that, that we utilize these technologies to automatically ascertain based on a profile of risk and gain what geography, what set of users, human or otherwise, that we're exposing that new capability to first, getting feedback, making any changes that we need to, and then so on and so on. Uh, for releasing that. I think that would be great. I think redefining uh, through the use of some of these, these capabilities, um, the discovery of unintended, the value of unintended workflow or user journeys in applications to be discovered by AI ops. I, in my own experience in operations at a minimum, uh, there was always a scenario where someone would present a, a you know, they they come in with a certain symptom, and you'd ask them to describe that 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 symptom, and then you inevitably need to ask them, how did you get there if you couldn't replay it yourself? Not just the ability to kind of capture that, what actually happened, and whether or not that was an intended user journey, uh, but actually defined the ones that are that actually represent an opportunity to have a positive impact on a better experience, increased revenue generation, uh, lowered risk, or represents a security vulnerability. We, you know, there's there's a technique um, that we recently invested in called fuzzing that we're applying to security use cases, which is along those lines, kind of automatically working to predict essentially unexpected paths or functions or behaviors and seeing what the results are but from a, a security kind of perspective i think the flip of that is the same thing but finding the things that are actually pretty cool and why aren't we doing that already that's where I, that's what i'd like to see well i hope that when we have the next version of this we're talking about some of this stuff actually being uh popularized and in, 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 uh, in, in production broadly speaking. Um, I said that was one last question, but I've got to ask you one final, final question. And that's okay. that, uh, you know, you, you teased us up front about being the expert in fried chicken. So oh. I, I, I'm dying to know, where can I get the best fried chicken and make me an aficionado? What am I looking for? What, what, what are the defining attributes of great fried chicken? Uh, well, for for me, at, at at the highest level, and I'll leave it leave it at, at that highest level, always to discuss later. It must be chicken that is brined sufficiently, cold brined. So it's not lukewarm brined, cold brined. Don't skip on the salt. Don't skip on uh, a little bit of sugar. That's always a trick. Uh, and certain spices. The other thing is, is I'm a big believer in double dipping. So one of the things you'll find is a lot of a lot of places will single dip bread uh, said chicken. It just ain't gonna cut it. I mean, it's a certain type. It's for other people. That that's fine. 
I particularly care for a double dipped. So you, there's, it takes two trips through the, through the, uh, through the breading. Says the fried um, chicken analyst. Says the fried chicken analyst. <laughs> fried in a, in a deep fryer. I personally am, act, am not a fan of, of pressure cooking uh, fryers uh, for fried chicken. I just don't think it, it yields the same kind of result uh, that's there without other trickery, which we can always discuss some other time. That's my two cents. That's my main. Well, gosh, now I know why I'm sticking to AI because it's much easier than figuring out uh, <laughs> fried chicken. Many more variables when it comes to fried chicken. Sure. Uh, good to know. It has been a great education about the, all things food and uh, AI ops. Sure. Uh, Colin, great having you on the show. Uh, I'm sure our guests got a lot out of this one. And uh, please take me up on the offer. Let's make this the first of, uh, of a series. What do you think about that? Sure. Sounds good. Good stuff. Great work. Thanks, as always, to everyone for listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>